As it was in the days of Noah, part two, by Pastor Dan Gaiman. No historical event has ever claimed more attention than the account of Noah's flood and his building of the ark. The biblical account of this flood is echoed in the traditions of almost every major nation on this earth, both modern and ancient. Hardly anyone is so disconnected from history that they have not heard of Noah's flood. This biblical event is one of the first stories that children learn. How hard is it to believe that even though a mountain of incredible evidence supports a worldwide flood, many have grown up believing that not only the account of Noah's flood is a myth or fairy tale, but so are the other primary stories of the Bible, including the biblical account of creation, the story of Adam and Eve, and a plethora of other biblical events. The purpose of this foray into the Genesis account of Noah and the Flood is to demonstrate that those catastrophic events in Noah's day did indeed occur. Noah did build an ark, the wicked drowned, and Noah's family of eight survived. The salvation of Noah and his family in the ark points to divine intervention by the transcendent God of history to save his covenant people. God used the Flood to wipe the earth clean of all the wicked. The Genesis flood marked the most catastrophic event short of the creation of heaven and earth. Nothing comparable to this cataclysmic event has ever occurred. Just consider this. Every living person and creature was wiped from the face of the earth, except for the eight souls of Noah's family and the living creatures aboard the ark. The only people to survive the devastation Noah and his family as well as the seed stock of the other distinct and separate races preserved within the ark. This enormous judgment of water, a literal baptism of the earth by water, prefigured the judgment of fire that will be forthcoming as the wrath of God against sin is again handed down in the baptism of fire. The mere fact that Jesus Christ is quoted as addressing the flood in both the Gospels of Matthew and Luke speaks to the legitimacy of this catastrophic event. The words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 are a clear warning to all believers that judgment that will again visit this earth when our holy and sovereign God unleashes his divine justice upon an unrepentant, sinful people. The Apostle Peter closely examines God's final judgment upon the wickedness of depraved man in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-14. through 14. Every Christian needs to examine these biblical truths and hold them close to their heart. The enormity of the coming judgment by fire is more than sufficient to empty the earth of all living things and people. Without divine intervention, which only God himself can provide, no one will survive. This future catastrophic judgment will fulfill the meaning of the word total annihilation. Since Noah is the man of faith whom God called to build the ark for the saving of his family and other life forms that survived the flood, let us examine this historic hero by turning to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. This single verse of scripture 
condenses Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and more than half of 9, which are 87 consecutive verses, into just one verse. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebraic Israelites who clearly understood the history of the Old Testament. If all we had to guide us about Noah and the flood was this one verse, we would have almost no way to understand the enormity of the event that actually occurred. The same is true regarding everyone whose names appear in the biblical hall of fame of the saints enumerated there. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 does not give us a detailed understanding of how Noah was qualified to be called a person of faith. James chapter 2 verse 17 reminds us that faith without works is dead. Even as faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. The Old Testament saints believed that salvation under the Abrahamic covenant of promise was by faith, not by works. Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 confirms that Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Circumcision, not unlike baptism in the New Covenant, was the sign and seal of the righteousness which these Old Testament saints had by faith. It was not a salvation of works based on the law, ceremony, morals, or anything other than their trust, faith, and belief in God. Noah was such a man. He is called just in Genesis 6 verse 9. He was a Hebrew, justified by faith, not by any works. His faith brought him salvation. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 does not tell us what God warned Noah about, nor does it convey the things that were not as yet seen. It does tell us that Noah moved in the fear of God and went to prepare an ark. What the ark was, or what it would be saving Noah from, is not disclosed in Hebrews. However, it is clear that because of faith and action, Noah built the ark and thereby saved his household in so doing. He condemned the world that then was and became an heir of righteousness by faith. Much is packed into this single verse. Thus, without careful examination of Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, we could never fully comprehend the enormous implications and devastation resulting from this catastrophic event. What a loss of biblical wisdom and knowledge that would be. Let's return to Genesis 6 and underscore the fact that the flood is precisely what the Apostle Peter said it was in 2 Peter chapter 3. We must carefully examine the event that prefigured the coming judgment from fire at the end of the age. Peter makes three major points as he concludes his exhortation. Ponder each of these three points and apply them to our future. First, Peter warned of a catastrophic global judgment that would befall the earth and everyone living upon it. Bible students are familiar with the judgment of God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 declares, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. God will judge one sinner at a time. Those who have by grace come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ have already been judged of sin, which now is under the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the catastrophic judgment that Peter, Moses, and the Lord Jesus Christ all addressed will impact the entire earth and all who are living upon it. 
Recall the fire and brimstone that God rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. God wiped out the ancient metropolis of Nineveh in 612 BC. The plague of God fell upon 24,000 Israelites in Numbers 25. Pestilence ended the life of 70,000 Israelites in the catastrophic judgment that fell under the reign of King David in 2 Samuel 24. Jesus Christ himself warned of universal judgment coming in the cataclysmic fire from heaven. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 reads this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away, and with a great noise the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are there shall be burned up. Thirdly, just as God used Noah to call the people to repentance and to prepare for judgment, so God used the Apostle Peter to warn Christians in every season of time to prepare for the coming judgment. Peter warned in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11-12, through 12, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Let's return now to Genesis 6. In the first lesson, five significant events occurred in the season before God's warning to Noah unfolded. Number one, the non-white races experienced a population explosion while the Caucasian stock of Adam and Eve diminished. Number two, there was a concurrent explosion of sexual perversion. Number three, people's hearts, thoughts, intents, and imaginations were constantly evil. Number four, violence and random acts of violence and mass murder exploded. Number five, biblical gender distinction, marriages, and families imploded. The historic traditions of godly morality disappeared. In response to this collapse of God's order for society, the Bible tells us what was on God's mind in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5-8. through 8. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord Jehovah that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And Jehovah said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. These words are compelling. They remind us that God closely observes this earth, so that absolutely nothing will ever escape his all-seeing eyes. In fact, God was so grieved at the gross wickedness of depraved man that he used a human emotion to express what was in his mind. This is known as anthropomorphic expression. God was so grieved that he was ready to destroy the earth and all life that was upon it. As this cataclysmic judgment approached, God showed favor to Noah and his house. In Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, God declared, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Normally, a writer does not begin a sentence with the conjunction but. However, God did, and not without good reason. In the midst of a depraved world, God found one man and his family who by the grace of God had remained faithful. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Scripture makes these important observations about Noah. Noah was a just man. Noah was not righteous for his good works. Rather, even though he was obedient to the law, he was not justified by the law, or any good deeds, or any ceremonial cleansing. Noah had confessed his sin, and made the appropriate sacrifice unto God for his sin. Therefore, God declared Noah righteous before God. Noah was not a self-justified man. He was justified through the righteousness God imputed unto him. Noah was perfect in his generations. Noah had not corrupted his genetic inheritance. Noah was the tenth man in the direct descent from Adam and Eve. Noah was responsible for continuing his lineage through which Jesus Christ would descend. The words perfect and generations are important. Perfect implies that Noah had inherited a bloodline that was pure and undiluted with blood from outside his ethnic heritage. Generations is from the Hebrew root word toledah and means descent, lineage, family history. Noah had preserved his racial integrity as an Adamite and passed his blood pedigree on to his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah walked with God. Enoch and Noah are the antediluvians of whom it is said they walked with God. This is simply saying that Noah was in wholesome, free, and open communion with God. Thus, Noah's prayer life was well established as a central focus of his life. Genesis 6 verse 13 is the first time that we know that God actually warned Noah of what he was about to do. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The spiritual, moral, racial behavior of men had become so corrupt and violence was so prevalent that both conditions had reached a point of complete reprobation. The earth was simply irredeemable. The wickedness of man was so great that it was beyond all recovery of repentance. The earth was to become God's weapon of choice to destroy all life from the planet. Genesis 6 verse 14 reveals God's master plan for the salvation of Noah and his family. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. The Hebrew root for ark is simply box, which does not appear again except for the ark of bulrushes in Exodus 2 verse 3, which Jochebed, the mother of Moses, used to hide her baby and float on the Nile River. God used a floating box to save Moses, so he could be the great deliverer of Israel. One interesting note is that God had Noah smear pitch inside and outside the ark. God likewise used the floating ark, God's super box, 
to save Noah and his family, and thereby the Adamic race, preserving the Messianic seed line, as well as other life forms, including representatives of the separate and distinct races needed to repopulate the earth after the flood. Genesis 6 verse 15 gives more specific information regarding the size of the ark. And this is the fasten which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. The ark was three hundred feet long, seventy feet wide, and forty feet high. It was not designed for speed or for excessive travel. Rather, it was designed primarily for stability. The dimensions of the ark were a ratio of 6 to 1, and it is this same ratio of 6 to 1 for length and width that became the gold standard in shipbuilding, and it remains so today. Stability was absolutely critical in a flood that was going to witness drenching downbursts of rain from heaven as a canopy of water from the heavens poured for 40 days and 40 nights. Violent earthquakes, volcanoes, and other acts of nature erupted when God turned loose the fountains of the deep. Until the 1880s, the ark may have been the largest vessel ever used on water in the history of the world. At that time, engineers could begin designing enormous ships because of the introduction of iron. After the ark, the P and O line launched the largest ship built. The British built Himalaya was 240 feet long. Later, in 1858, the British built the Great Eastern, which was almost 700 feet long. The ratio of these larger ships still remained 6 to 1. So you see, God's design for the Ark was perfect. The enormity of this engineering project may be difficult to imagine, but Noah faithfully built it anyway. The Ark was designed to survive the greatest catastrophic event since the creation of the universe. This huge box did not have pointed ends like most ships and did not have rounded sides and hulls, giving it one-third larger capacity than a similar sized ship. The Ark is estimated to have weighed 1,415 tons with an internal space of 100,000 cubic feet. The volume of the Ark was 1.5 million cubic feet. This was a massive ship. The Ark has been estimated to have the capacity equal to 522 railroad cars. Each boxcar could hold 240 sheep. So, 125,000 sheep could have been packed into the Ark. Sheep are considered average-sized animals, so the Ark was fully capable of housing all the animals and other life creatures referenced in Genesis' narrative. Moreover, Three stories was sufficient for installing countless stalls for all the life forms aboard the ark. Genesis 6 verse 16 provides further information about the ark. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. While the size of the window is unknown, its purpose was for light. The roof of the ark apparently overhung the edges all the way around the structure so that rain could not enter the open spaces. This would provide much needed ventilation. Also, the opening between the beams would allow for additional light. One door was located in the center of the ark.
Noah, and all life aboard the ark were aboard for a 371-day cruise. Under such primitive conditions, this was a very long time. There were no stateroom butlers, porters, or dining out, no frills of any kind. Noah made elaborate plans for securing food and fresh water, taking care of the sanitary conditions of everyone aboard the ark, and tending to other necessities to sustain life for such a time. A rather fascinating book titled Inside Noah's Ark, Why It Worked, co-authored by Tim Chaffee and Laura Welch, provides a wealth of information on how life was managed aboard the ark. In many ways, the ark was something like a three-story floating barn where scores of animals, Noah and his family, lived for more than one full year without walking on ground. Bible scholars have used the ark as a prototype for how God intends his church to be regarding the salvation of his people. The ark has three stories, which parallel the trinity of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one door typifies that Jesus Christ is the one and only door into the kingdom of God. John chapter 10 verse 9. Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. The choice of Noah typifies the election of God our Father in having chosen Noah before time. The blood of Jesus Christ, which covers our human depravity, is typified as the pitch within and without. The Holy Spirit is the sealing and sanctification typified by sealing the door of the ark. The one window for lighting the ark reminds us that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. His life is the light of all who are saved. That a small remnant was saved in the ark should comfort us considerably, for it shows that our sovereign God will exercise miracles, wonders, and whatever it requires to preserve his covenant remnant in the time of Jacob's trouble. Why the global flood was an imperative for God, Genesis 6 verse 17 proves definitively that the earth was completely engulfed in water. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life. From under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Let us define a major point in this verse. Notice how God emphasizes his sovereign power. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters. The 87 consecutive verses devoted to the flood demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of God Almighty in this catastrophic event. As far as I can tell in my studying, Use of the phrase, flood of waters, is limited to this global cataclysmic event. Furthermore, explore these points with me. In Genesis 6, verse 17, God declared, All flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. How many living things were under heaven? All of them, and all of them drowned or were otherwise crushed and killed. Genesis 7 verse 23 declares, And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, 
and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. How many living things that had life upon the earth, or were dependent on the earth to live, were destroyed? Everything that existed upon the surface of the earth, or depended upon the earth for life. The flood covered all the earth to a depth sufficient to cover the highest mountain peaks on earth. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. How much of the earth was under heaven? All of it. How many hills and mountains were under heaven? All of them. Fifteen cubits. One cubit equals about eighteen inches. Upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. From Genesis chapter 7 verse 20. Even Mount Ararat, which rises to 17,000 feet, and where the ark came to rest, was covered. The fossils of ocean life forms are found throughout the highest mountains of the earth, proving the global nature of this flood. The flood was lengthy because of the time that water covered the earth. For 371 days, well over a year, water was either pouring down or still covering the earth. This was sufficient time to carve the Grand Canyon, which has many examples of marine life buried in its stratified layers of sediment. A mastodon has been found buried in the tundra at the edge of Russia in frozen soil. When it was dug up and its stomach contents examined, they found it full of tropical plants that could have been available only in a tropical environment, not the tundra of Russia. When a canopy of water was held in space, the earth was like a giant greenhouse, making tropical vegetation possible throughout the earth, an earth without the seasonal changes that we know of today. The earth was global because the apostle Peter spends an entire chapter, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, using the Genesis flood as a precursor, a prototype to the judgment of fire that will envelop all the earth and consume every living thing upon it. The earth was baptized by water in the Genesis flood, but it will be baptized by fire in the coming day of judgment. The first time covenant appears in the Bible is in Genesis 6 verse 18. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. God told Noah that he and all his family are to live inside the ark. Judgment was about to fall and God entered a covenant to save Noah and his family. Rain was coming. Remember that it had never even rained before in Earth's history. Build an ark? A box boat? What was a boat for? Noah was going to need one now. Two of every living thing were to be brought onto the ark to preserve life. Genesis chapter 6 verse 19 reads, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Two of every living creature were to be brought aboard the ark. Every living thing includes the male and female species of all life forms, including pairs of all existing, separate, distinct, and pure races of the earth. No species that survived on the earth were excluded from this command. You will note that Genesis 7 verse 2 declares that Noah 
was to take seven pairs of the male and female species of all clean animals. These were animals that could be used for blood sacrifice at the altar in the post-flood future. Examine Genesis 6 verse 20. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. How would Noah gather up all the life forms that God said should board the ark? Would he go on safaris? No, Noah would remain in place, and God would drive all life forms to Noah as they sought shelter. Instinct drove them. Animals' instinct drives them to know when nature is going to go cataclysmic. In Genesis 6 verse 21, God commanded Noah to take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. All types of food that Noah and his family and the other life forms needed aboard the ark were brought on board. Noah had a long time to prepare this massive store of food. Who was Noah? He was a giant among men. He was one of the most important men ever to live. Noah lived in both the old world before the flood and the new earth after the flood. He lived amid the greatest climate change in the history of the world. Return to Hebrews 11 verse 7 and review this scripture. By faith, Noah. How did Noah respond to the commands of his creator? Genesis 6 verse 22 tells us, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Genesis 7 verse 1 reads, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Noah was a man of indomitable faith. He built something that had never been built, for something no one had ever seen, simply because God told him to do so. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. From Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. The essence of faith is that it requires no understanding, no foreknowledge. Faith needs no evidence. Faith is trust beyond comprehension. We trust God for our eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. We trust that Christ will return exactly on God's time clock. We are preparing for life in a kingdom that we have never seen. We believe in the Old and New Testament saints that we have never met. We believe in a young virgin who conceived a seed of Abraham to bear very man and very God, the incarnate Jesus Christ, in whose being we have salvation. Today, we are building our faith in Jesus Christ and his church as the ark of our survival for whatever the future holds. Like Noah, we believers must act in faith and obedience and build our lives in Jesus Christ. We are his body, the church. The church is our ark of safety.